Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. You're muted. You're supposed to unmute me. Dang it. I, I tried. You muted yourself, so I can't unmute you when you do it. I can only unmute you when I do it. This is becoming such a running gag now. I think you're muting me on purpose. <laughs> it. I've never done that, <laughs> but I have thought about it. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm oh, glad I'm not going to put the thought in your ear. That's right. How's life treating you tonight? Oh, better than I deserve. I'm having a great time. I hope you are too, my friend. Oh, man. Life is good. Just a note, after we did our show last week, somebody messaged me immediately, and I've gotten several messages during the week. Amazon is discontinuing their Amazon Smile uh, uh, program. And so, folks, if you've been buying things on Amazon to help us out, just know that that's coming to an end. We're going we're gonna to lose a little chunk of donations. It wasn't a ton, ton, but it was certainly enough to be worth it. And so we appreciate all the yes. folks that were doing that, but just FYI, it's going away. Um, just a couple of other little notes, please there, like. There is Exmo strips though, and this is another one I, love I got. So there's, you can Maven, always support us. Hi, hi everybody. <laughs> so I'm just gonna jump right in and just hit the ground running. But uh, yeah, <laughs> we there's merch and Exmo shirts. So anyway, just wanted to say that. What was that Exmo shirt again? I don't think I saw it the first this time. One, it's a love uh, rainbow flag. <laughs> It's oh. so <laughs> that could be kind of generic. That's not necessarily just that's true. That's not right. necessarily Mormonism live, but that's also where you get the Mormonism live and Radio Free Mormon ah. merch too, right? I think they've got your logo, also. Yes, they do. They and do. The and they've got today. bunches Everyone of others. Get it in yep. a coffee mug if you want. Put it on a hat. Get it on a shirt. Wear it all over the place. Yes, awesome. absolutely, <laughs> uh, folks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> please like subscribe share leave us a five-star review we deeply appreciate that uh and then also rfm you and i were talking this week youtube is now opening up uh the arena for these sh uh shorts essentially kind of like tiktok i think they're trying to compete with tiktok and you and mm -hmm. i had talked during the week we would really love it we've got an audience of about uh, ten thousand folks on youtube we've got about another 15 to twenty thousand folks who listen to the audio when we publish it the next day uh, uh, in audio podcast form, we would love it. Listeners. If there's a favorite episode of yours, specifically a favorite clip of yours, I don't know what their time frame is, but let's say 30 seconds to two minutes. If there's something that we're doing on the show that is deeply entertaining, interesting, informative, uh, if you guys will be willing to send us information on which episode it was and what the timestamp was that you saw it on, we will turn it into a short and we will thank you uh, publicly if, you'd, if you're okay with that. Some folks might like to remain anonymous, but if you'd like to be thanked publicly, we'll thank you for that because it saves us a ton of work and create. And it's just so hard to go back and listen. But for the folks who are listening to this, you're listening to different episodes, maybe not in order. If you happen to hear something or you remember something that, was, uh, that stuck out to you as valuable, 
please uh, either inform us, um, uh, send us an email, or you could just message me or RFM on Facebook. Uh, and that would be an easy way to do it. And we would deeply appreciate having access to that. So thank you. Um, yeah, I'll tell you, um, I'm so busy with this podcast, with Radio Free Mormon, with everything else I've got going on in my life that I actually, I rarely go back and even watch these podcasts. So even though I'm doing them, preparing for them, uh, once it's done, I'm on to something else. I used to hear, oh, some TV actors talk about how they never watched the TV shows that they were in. And I thought, oh, what a bunch of hooey. Well, I get it now. Right. You're in, you're in so much. Like you do something on your own for Radio Free Mormon during the week. You do something for Mormonism Live. You put a re bunch of research into both. And uh, it's just hard to get back to those things. And on some level, it's not interesting. But I will say it um, – Going back and having listened to a few things, I'm, I'm sometimes surprised at what I said, good and bad, by the way, but surprised at what I said, uh, not really being the words I think I would have used in the modern moment. And I'll tell you another thing, too. You, when you put out those episodes where you were sharing your gospel doctrine teaching back in the day. Oh, yes, 1989. You've changed so much. Even just your voice alone is so significantly different today than then. When I listened to that, I, I really didn't couldn't easily tell it was you. It's a little lower now, and it doesn't crack as much. Yeah, yeah. Look at that. I love it. Good. Uh, just fresh back from your mission and uh, serving the Lord. So uh, tonight we were going to talk about tithing, and I guess we could probably just start right off with the slideshow, Maven, if you want to put slide number one up. This is going to be great, because when Bill told me he was going to be talking about tithing tonight, I thought, yawn. And then I saw what he was going to talk about, and I said, oh, Bill Real is going to perform the magical feat of making tithing interesting. I love it because, yeah, paying 10% of your gross income isn't always the funnest thing in the world, huh? Yeah, and part of the problem is how many talks on tithing have I had to endure during 40 years in church? Believe me, it's a ton. And so I just hear the word tithing. The eyeballs start going up and back in the back of the head. And I hope that anybody out there who might be thinking the same thing is going to have a real pleasant surprise tonight. Yeah, we're going to be doing a bunch of fair use tonight, my friend. Oh, yes. Well, let's keep it fair, but let's use it anyway. <laughs> All right. So um, I should also note, I know that Rock Waterman, I saw him in the comments. You had mentioned that before we went live. Uh, Rock who? Rock Waterman. And uh, Oh, Waterman. Yeah, yeah. He used to be a big deal. He was. Uh, he did an article. <laughs> Rock, how are you doing, Rock? I love you. We're, we're friends. <laughs> Rock well, did an article were, years ago on now. tithing, and it was deeply influential to me that I ended up doing two podcast episodes using some of the research that he had found and I had found a few other things and put it together. And, uh, and then just recently I recorded another episode on tithing that was supposed to be presented in a way that a believer would give his space to listen to it. And they might be influenced to realize the church was asking too much. And we'll go over a lot of that mm -hmm. data tonight, but this is a very different conversation than that episode. But just to thank rock for participating, he just uh, put out an article a couple days ago playing off the episode I did, I notified him that we'd be doing this one tonight and he is following along. So without, uh, no pun on the Book of Mormon, but without further ado, uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 119. This is the section where we first get tithing as a doctrine in the church. And you had mentioned that before this, they were doing the law of consecration. Anything you right. want to say about that here? Oh, just that I think it's helpful because section 119, that's 1838, right? Okay, so it's 1838. Church has been around for eight years. They're in Missouri now, and they're just about to be thrown out of Missouri. But what had been going on earlier was a version of this that didn't work out so well. And my understanding is 
is that what uh, the idea was that once they got to Kirtland, you got the law of consecration and you've got your bishop set up and a new member comes in and they give everything they've got over to the church. They deed any property they've got over the church. Everything becomes the church and it's the bishop's job. And this is the critical point. The bishop's job to make the determination as to how much this individual needs of their property or whatever in order to make a living. And then after they get it deeded back to them, right? And the rest of it belongs to the church as well as what's being deeded back to them. And the church can do with it whatever they see fit. But you get what the church decides, i.e. what the bishop decides. And then you use whatever it is that's been given back to you in order to make a living. And then off of that increase, you pay a tenth to the church. And that law of consecration didn't work out so well. So in fact, so bad that they ended up changing it. And now we have this law being given. And and I think it's important because what we're going to run into, and I want to note here, Doctrine and Covenants section 119, verse 1. And I don't really have much beef with verse 1. Verily thus saith the Lord, I require that all surplus property be put into the hands of the bishop of my church in Zion. Um, Next, uh, let's see here. So next slide. Just by the way. Yeah, I'm just saying, notice the difference now. Now it's up to the member to decide what it is that they need to keep and what is surplus, as opposed to the bishop making that decision after everything's been given to him. That's the big change I see here with 119. Yeah. And so when I look up Webster's Dictionary 1828 version, surplus is overplus. And we all sort of understand intuitively what surplus is. Overplus, that which remains when use is satisfied. Excess beyond what is prescribed or wanted in the United States, surplus of wheat or rye. They're just giving an example there. Um, but it's, it is this idea that it is what remains when what you need of that to use is satisfied. So it's what's left over. And then right. I don't have a, much of a problem with that verse, but then we get to verse four and it says, and after that, those who have thus been tithed shall pay one-tenth of all their interest annually. And this shall be a standing law unto them forever, for my holy priesthood, saith the Lord. It seemed strange to me that we had, you, and you and I were talking about this, that, that we had the law of consecration. You talked to me about how, you, like, hey, this was the original law. It didn't work. It got done away with. Heavenly Father is the author. If we're to believe the church is true, Heavenly Father is the author of DNC 119. And he is now doing away with the law of consecration. He's giving the law of tithing. And he notes, it's almost like he's saying, look, we got rid of that one. It didn't work that well, but this one's going to be a standing law unto them forever. Um, you mentioned that it was, was it three words? This shall be a standing, uh, a law, law and, and forever. forever. And all three of those yeah. words uh, intimate that this is not going to change. This is, this is the thing that's going to hold. And it seems strange because as through the night, we're going to talk about how tithing has changed. It is interesting to note that it, what's that? You go ahead, please. No, no. I was was just going to say, just to note that it's changed. And here it seems like God is giving us something that's supposed to last forever. And if, if God's Mm -hmm. consistent and he's unchanging and he says that something's going to be around forever, you would think it would be. Well, you would think so. If words have their common meaning, words do mean things. Yep. Verse three, uh, suddenly I'm understanding, I think, what verse three means, which I had never done before until this moment, which means I am being inspired by the Holy Ghost. And this shall be the beginning of the tithing of my people. So the beginning is you give your surplus to the church. That's the beginning of the tithing. Yep. And then after that, everything you make in interest or surplus, you get tithed off of that. And that's the second part. That's the ending 
of the tithing of my people. So it's in two parts as set forth here. But you're right. First off, surplus is very important in verse one. It is not income. Mm -mm. It's your surplus, what you have left over after you have used everything that you need to do to satisfy your own needs, your family's needs. And then those three words, standing law forever. Standing means permanency. Law certainly means permanency and forever. Uh, yeah, permanency. So this is the way it was supposed to be forever. It's in the doctrine and covenants. It says, thus saith the Lord. But like you said, we're going to find out that it ain't necessarily so. And we notice that verse one in the modern interpretation of tithing has already been done away. Nobody enters the church and gives all of their leftover property and goods to the bishop. That's been done away. And so now we're in verse four and we're going like, okay, we're supposed to pay one tenth of our interest annually. And so what we end up with is uh, this 1828 Webster's Dictionary. Uh, again, this is the definitions for interest. On the left-hand side, the first column is how interest is used as a verb. And we recognize that uh, DNC section 119 is using interest as a noun. So we go over to the right-hand side, interest, and we look through these definitions one through five. And if we notice... Uh, number one is in, uh, influence over others. Number two is a share, a portion, a part. Um, but when we get to three, four, five, I think this is the way in which interest is to be, uh, is the interpretation of interest according to the 1830s, essentially what it meant in the 1828 dictionary and would have meant uh, throughout the 1830s for sure. Number three, regard to private profit. And this is important because we'll get to one time in church history where this seems to be uh, in part utilized this way. Same with uh, number four, premium paid for the use of money. So in other words, if I make an investment, for instance, and now that investment has brought me back money, the money that it brings me back in addition to what I loaned or what I invested is interest. Uh, Which the idea, is the normal understanding that we have, I think. Yep. And then again, back to number three, private profit. So it can only be your private profit if it isn't used to pay someone else for other things. So if this is the money you get to keep, private profit. And, and then number five, surplus advantage. So, there we have that word again, surplus. Mm -hmm. It goes along with private profit. It's what yep. you have left over. Yep. It's the so, cream off the top. So, so three, four, and five, none of them seem to be understood in any way that would be close to someone saying all the money you make, all your wages, you should pay 10% of that. It seems to be indicating that whatever you have left over after use, or one other possibility is whatever interest you've earned on some sort of investment of your money, then you would pay that. And that would be the interest you pay a 10th of. Um, so to note that. Okay. Another thing I picked up on is Genesis chapter 14. Uh, Genesis chapter 14, verse 20, and blessed be the most high God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand, and he gave him tithes of all. And I just want to note that Joseph Smith ends up adapting this section of the scriptures in the Joseph Smith translation. So he obviously, either Heavenly Father or Joseph Smith, saw some sort of idea missing from Genesis 14, that he then uh, gives us the Joseph Smith translation, 
And notice there in the bottom left of the image, I, I cut and pasted that part, but that Joseph Smith, the church says, the church is the one who tells us this, that the Joseph Smith translation, Genesis 14, 25 to 40, is to be compared to Genesis 14, 18 to 20. When we go to the Joseph Smith translation, it appears as though verse 39 is the comparison to verse 20. And so it strikes me as to what Joseph Smith adds to that verse. Wherefore, Abram paid unto him tithes of all that he had, of all the riches which he possessed, which God had given him more than that which he had need. In other words, Abraham paid tithing, not on the income he had that he took care of his family with, but everything above and beyond that, more than that which he had need, he had he paid tithing on. And that's the part that gets added to make it different than what 20 was already saying to begin with. So that also seems significant to me. Any thoughts there? Right. Just a couple of things, of course. Uh, contextually, this is Abram who's returning from his battle with the five kings. I think it's five kings. One of them has my favorite name, Keter Laomer. And Abram wins and he takes all the spoils. This is where these riches come from. And so under today's definition of tithing, it's easy. You know, I can tell you every time it's a, what is it? It's a dime from every dollar and a penny from every dime. He would just take a tenth of the value of that and give it to Melchizedek, who's this high priest of Salem or Jerusalem that he's encountering now and to whom he is paying this. But in this Joseph Smith translation, as you mentioned, which would be, I think, in the latter half probably of 1830, that this is being done because it's Genesis 14. It's pretty early on there. Joseph Smith wants to make it clear that the tithes of all is not that definition, but that it is what God had given to Abram more than that which he had need. So it's actually not to me, not clear to me right now if he's talking about whether everything that Abram had more than what he needed was the tithe that he gave. Because I could see that as being uh, consistent with other definitions of tithing, like the one in section 119, or whether he's saying, look at the surplus and then take a tenth of that, and that's the tithe. Don't make me say it, Bill. You know I want to. Yeah, so let me just say that uh, it seems as though 1439 has some sort of connection to the law of tithing as given in the Restoration 119, and that Joseph or Heavenly Father are doing something in this verse to try to make it kosher with the law of tithing as what is revealed in 119. Um, I think what's clear is that it is not the way it's interpreted today. Yeah, totally. All right. Then the next thing that we've got here is Bishop Partridge. And this is where the investment thing comes in. The idea that interest is what you either loan out um, or what you, um, what's another, let me go back here for just a second. Cause there's two different ways this is used. Um, premium paid for the use of money. So if you loan someone money or if you invest, for instance, in the stock market, and either way, generally, when you loan money or invest money, you're expecting more money back than what you put in to begin with. And right. that would be the interest. And Bishop Partridge, the very first bishop of the church, by the way, and this is in the Joseph Smith Papers Project. Uh, this is a document that you can go find. It's going to be in our resource notes for tonight's show, um, but you can go find it. 
And in this document, the, the actual page there is that rectangle page just to the left of Bishop Partridge. But then we zoomed in a little bit and cut it out for the section just to the left of that with the red underlines. But what it says is Bishop Partridge, and he is the first bishop in the church. He is speaking to Newell K. Whitney, who is the second bishop in the church. And Newell K. Whitney is about to go off and to uh, preside over his uh, group of people. And Bishop Partridge is essentially training him to what his responsibilities are. And so he's teaching uh, Newell K. Whitney about the law of tithing. And here's what he says. He says, if a man is worth a thousand dollars, the interest on that would be $60. Again, one-tenth of your interest paid annually. We're the assuming interest a 6% on that would be, rate of, sorry, he's assuming a 6% rate of interest, right? Yes, he's assuming a 6% rate of interest. So if a man is worth $1,000, the interest on that would be six, uh, $60. And one-tenth of the interest will, of course, be $6. Thus, you see the plan. And so that is what Bishop Partridge says to Newell K. Whitney. And I'm not the only one who agrees with that, by the way. You'll notice there, Stephen Harper, church historian, um, also a contributor to the Joseph Smith Papers Project, and uh, not sure if he's a big fan of the show, but uh, but we certainly like quoting Stephen. He always has lots of interesting things to say. And I love that picture of him. What a smile. Come to my arms, my beamish boy. He says uh, in a... Uh, Church, and uh, I want to say Enzyme, but I think they renamed it the Liahona again. And it's an article called The Tithing of My People, DNC 119 and 120, Stephen Harper. He says, Bishop Partridge understood, quote, one-tenth of all their interest annually to mean 10% of what the saints would earn in interest if they invested their net worth for a year. So very different. Bill, this is huge. I had never heard of this before. If you take nothing away from tonight's show, take this away, that the first bishop of the church defined tithing as one-tenth of the interest or even the presumed interest on what you are worth. And that's what he's teaching to the second bishop. And today's church historian, or a very prominent member of the church historian's office, I should say, Stephen Harper, agrees with that analysis. He doesn't necessarily say that's what the church is teaching today because, of course, he's got to keep his job. I can't imagine getting axed any faster than coming out and saying that's what it should be today. Yeah, but he's certainly agreeing. Money. Screw it the yeah. money and you're, gonna, you're not going to work tomorrow. Yeah, he'd be called Seven Finger Steve. So, <laughs> but definitely this is the way it was originally. Yeah, and Bishop Partridge seems to be interpreting verse 4 of DNC 119 as literally as one could interpret it. Um, whatever you make of this, again, this is the only reference I know of in church history where it's understood and taught this way, but at least recognize that Bishop Partridge understands the spirit that of tithing in the sense, and what I mean by that is the sense that tithing shouldn't be a huge burden on somebody. It should be paid as a small number in comparison to what you make. Um, he is certainly, he's not teaching 10% of surplus, but he certainly is closer to 10% of surplus than he is 10% of gross with the interpretation he's using. It would be a much smaller number. Yes. Okay. The next one's a fun one. This is the Millennial Star. So first I'm going to show you the cover and the page it comes from. Millennial Star, 1847. Orson Hyde is the editor, uh, and then I, I circle the, the spot. Per, 
Sorry, I was just going to say for those listening on audio that that is the church publication in England. Yes, this is their official uh, publication. This is the official way the church would communicate with the saints in England. Uh, Orson Hyde's the editor. I circled a spot that's important. Now we'll zoom into it. Um, this is what uh, is said in the article. I don't know who the author of the article is. I don't know if we can even find that out. But we do know that Orson Hyde is the editor, and it is an official publication of the church. It says, quote, the celestial law requires one-tenth part of all a man's substance, which he possesses at the time he comes into the church. And it references DNC 119.1. And one-tenth part of his annual increase ever after, 119 verse 4. If it requires... Can you stop all- for a second here, Bill? Please. It's already changed. I mean, this is so slippery, these different definitions. The celestial law requires one-tenth part of all a man's substance, which he possesses at the time he comes into the church. So now we're saying it's a tenth of everything you have that you give to the church when you when you come into the church. So at least that's apparently their understanding of section 119, that part where I said it's a little bit ambiguous as to what it means. Mm-hmm. So if I've got $1,000 and with $1,000, which is a lot of money back then, then I come into the church, I pay the church $1,000. And then after that, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, and then it says here, uh, one-tenth part of his annual increase ever after. If it requires all a man can earn to support himself and family, he's not tithed at all. See, again, the original way this was understood is that you took whatever you made and you took care of your building your cabin, putting food on your family's table, walking down to the merchant shop and getting some fabrics to put clothes on their body, whatever things you needed to make sure that the necessities of life were taken care of. If mm-hmm. everything you brought in went back out to those things, note it says he is not tithed at all. The celestial it's surplus, right? Because it's surplus. Yep. The celestial law does not take the mother and children's bread, neither aught else which they really need for their comfort. The poor that have not this world's goods to spare, but serve and honor God according to the best of their abilities in every other way shall have a celestial crown in the eternal kingdom of our Father. This also seems to indicate that temple blessings should not be predicated upon the poor paying any sort of tithing. No, not at all. And this is also critical. And I had not heard of this quote before either. So I'm learning a lot through your presentation tonight, Bill. Sweet. But it is amazing to me, and I know we're going to get to it, where this comes out and says that the celestial law, tithing, does not take the mothers and children's bread, neither aught else which they really need for their comfort. Based upon this, there should never be any church leader saying that if you have to choose between paying uh, tithing or feeding your children, you pay your tithing. That is completely contrary. That to sounds this familiar. I've heard that other part before. I think so. Maybe hmm. we have it. But you know what the thing is, is that that would never, ever come into existence because it's a false dichotomy because tithing You've already paid for your kids to eat. You've already paid your electricity bill. You've already paid for your needs. That's taken care of over here. Now tithing is on what's left. So there would never, ever have to be a choice under this definition of tithing from the millennial star, which was the understanding of the early leaders of the church. There would never be this choice that you have to make between feeding your kids or paying your electric bill and paying tithing. I'm getting exercised. I apologize. No, no, no. We have that clip. If you got it, let's play it. 
in my father's factory during vacation. The first question my father always asked after I received my salary was, what are you going to do with your money? I knew the answer and responded, pay my tithing and save for my mission. After working with him for about eight years and constantly answering his same question, my father figured he had taught me about paying my tithing. What he didn't realize was that I had learned this important principle in just one weekend. Let me tell you how I learned that principle. We're After some events related to a civil war in Central America, my father's business went bankrupt. He went from about 200 full-time employees to fewer than five sewing operators who worked as needed in the garage of our home. One day, during those difficult times, I heard my parents discussing whether they should pay tithing or buy food for the children. On Sunday, I followed my father to see what he was going to do. After our church meetings, I saw him take an envelope and put his tithing in it. That was only part of the lesson. The question that remained for me was what we were going to eat. <laughs> Early Monday morning, some people knocked on our door. When, open it, when I opened it, they asked for my father. I called for him, and when he arrived, the visitors told him about, about an urgent sewing order they needed as quickly as possible. They told him that the order was so urgent that they will pay for it in advance. That day, I learned the principles of pain tithing and the blessings that follow. I'm guessing that's the end of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. But yeah, this was problematic enough when Valerie Cordon said this. General Authority in the LDS Church and General Conference a few years back was problematic enough on its face. I did not realize at the time that it's doubly problematic because it completely contradicts the church's original understanding of tithing. I, I just wanted to jump in real fast. I think one of the eeriest things about that clip is that when he says like the thing that he was worried about was what are they going to eat that's a laugh track everybody gets that that's a funny joke and i just want to know now why is that funny why is a kid wondering how he's going to eat food now that you know his father's paying it to a multi-billion dollar company multi-billion um, hundreds yeah. of billions of dollars <laughs> yeah. And I think, yes. I mean, we know the answer. Everyone laughs because the obvious answer is, of course, that the Lord is going to provide. And in this story, it does. But there are so many stories, including my own, of times when the Lord doesn't provide. Um, I guess maybe he didn't starve to death. So since I didn't die, literally, then maybe I guess the Lord provided. But there's just so many times and so many ways where... Um, people, you know, not just me, but, you know, I, my experience was paying tithing kept making my financial situation worse and worse and worse and worse. And it only started getting better when I stopped paying it. So anyway, I just wanted to point that laughing bit out. Yeah, yeah I appreciate that, Maven. For me, the eeriest part of it was how much Valerie Cordon sounds like Bella Lugosi. 
I'm serious. So you go back and play it. It's a dead ringer. He <laughs> might as well be saying, game. he might as well be saying, the children of the night, what music they make. <laughs> 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 or should I say, hoo, 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 hoo. to note too, I mean, again, the original law is that if it requires all a man can earn to support himself and family, he is not tithed at all. The modern interpretation is pay your tithing even if your kids are going hungry. And whereas on the on this end, this doctrine that's originally given, it is if you can't eat, don't worry about tithing. Today's interpretation is pay your tithing and then go see your bishop and maybe he'll help you and maybe he won't. And for those of you who maybe are watching who are believers, it might be easy to say like, oh, the Lord helps everyone. Everyone who goes to see a bishop gets assistance. In this country, maybe, but you ought to go see, and I can't remember what their name of their company is or the nonprofit is now, but it used to be the Leahona Foundation. And uh, they went about trying to collect donations to feed Latter-day Saints in third world countries because the welfare system doesn't work there like it does here. The Leahona Foundation, once again, not affiliated with the LDS Church. It was a private uh, company or group or nonprofit that was organized in order to do the job that the LDS Church was supposed to do, but failing at. And they continue to fail today. Yeah. Notice that the doctrine of tithing, which was supposed to be a standing law forever, is starting to shift and move little by little. Okay. Next one. This is the 1899 General Conference. This is the one that Lorenzo Snow gives a talk. He speaks in the Saturday session, and I think this is the Sunday morning session. Um, this is the one, if folks will remember, there was this old vintage video that used to be shown all the time where Lorenzo Snow is all feeble and he's not well, and he gets in a carriage and rides to St. George and stands up in front of the people and tells them about it's you know they've been having a drought and they need to pay their tithing and the lord will solve all the problems by the way church made that video it's official video when you read uh lorenzo snow's talk in regards to how much pressure he put on the saints and the way in which he worded it and what's used and what's obscured and taken out this is a very different idea behind what was shown in the video and what actually was said by president lorenzo snow so now I, I show the markings of where it's at in the talk, and now we're going to zoom in so that we can read it. I only want to focus on the one section, but I would encourage folks to go back and read the talk. The way the church wants to use this doesn't match what he actually said. What he ends up saying is, I pray that every man, woman, and child who has means shall pay one-tenth of their income as tithing. So this is the very first instance where the church seems to be using the word income in place of the word tithe or in, in, in place of the word interest. And I just want to note that so Lorenzo Snow seems to be changing the definition of tithing. But as a caveat to him changing it, he also notes that if someone doesn't have means, they would in fact not pay tithing. And when the church uses this talk going forward to support interest as income, it every single time leaves out Lorenzo Snow's words, who has means. RFM, your thoughts. 
So let me read that to you the way it is with the ellipses and the way it's quoted forever after, apparently by church authorities. I plead with you in the name of the Lord, and I pray that every man, woman, and child shall pay one-tenth of their income as a tithing. What a difference those three words make. Yeah, and it, it seems strange. If, if the church is going to use this talk as its reference point later on, we'll get to the 1970 letter where they say they understand interest to mean income, and it seems like it goes back to here. It seems very deceptive. It seems very deceptive if they do that, but leave out the idea of who has means. Like it's completely removed. There's this idea that the church is hiding something, that, which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time, there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. Huh. That quote comes in handy a lot, doesn't it? It does. It's an oldie but a goodie. Um, I want to note here, when net or gross are used, almost everyone has means uh, to pay tithing, if that's what it is. Tithing is 10% of your gross, 10% of your net, which is after you pay taxes. Almost everyone has something, 50 cents, a if dollar. you make a dollar. Yeah. Yeah, if you make a dollar over the course of a year, you should pay 10%. You have 10 the means cents. to pay tithing. This only right. makes sense if we understand tithing as 10% of one surplus. Lorenzo Snow's words mesh fairly well with the 1847 Millennial Star, which said if, if a man, woman, or child does all that they can and they have to put all their money towards taking care of their needs, then there would be no tithing expected of them and they would still be worthy of all the blessings of the celestial law. Right, of course the problem is, is that he substitutes income for interest, which is the word the Lord used in section 119. Now, I don't know if he was doing this intentionally or whether he thought income was a synonym for interest. But we know it is not the same meeting. And believe me, the church up to the present day relies heavily on that word income when they're teaching tithing. Maven, yes, yeah, something? I just wondered if uh, living stipends count as income. I have a funny feeling they don't. Can I just say, I think that they probably do. And the only reason is because when uh, Mormon leaks a number of years ago had released that, um, what was it, a pay stub from Henry Hiring? Henry. Yeah. Right. And it had some handwritten notes on it that appeared to indicate that he was calculating a tenth of it for interest, uh, for tithing. And he actually wrote tithe, I believe, next to it. Oh, so okay. I think there is evidence that they, they may pay tithing. But go ahead, Maven, what's your thoughts? No, that was it. I was just really wondering if they paid tithing on the stipends. Um, I was assuming not, but that's an interesting tidbit. So at the very well, least... Well, I know it's out there, and I had thought that myself. I wondered, is that possible? And maybe it's possible, because there was a time back in the early church when the apostles had exempted themselves from paying tithing. I think that was under Brigham Young. It had to do with the Navi Temple, something like that. But it does appear, from what evidence we have, that modern day apostles do pay tithing on their income, their stipend, their living allowance of six figures base pay. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't, this is, I think this is you the have check. It. I think this is it. Um, yeah. 
But you know, it right says there was here, just tithing, tithing income. Tithing income. I do see what well, looks like it maybe an N there. Maybe that means no, but I was just looking through here and trying to see if there is an amount withheld for his tithing. Uh, because if he got a net pay be 126, right? And a gross pay. Uh, I don't see his gross pay for that pay period. Um, but he gets a child allowance. He gets a living allowance. He gets some sort of parsonage. Um, so, you know, you can imagine they're paying for his housing. They're paying for health care. They're getting free cars. They're anything and everything what, these guys need. Get their dental plans Yeah. Which is what parsonage translates to in a Mormon context is his yeah. house. I will tell you that I see that tithing in that line. And I see what my dad used to do for things where he'd put a little check mark next to it after it was accomplished. So he would know that it had been done. Gotcha. So again, I don't know what the, what the data is there, but. It's not conclusive either way, but at least he writes tithing out. Apparently yeah. it's his handwriting. It's his pay stub. So I guess it is. And I puts a che check next to it. Something that's on his mind. I don't know why it would be on his mind to be written out if it wasn't something that he paid. Yeah. All right. And uh, so just to note here again, Everyone who has means, the church is always, every point forward that I can think of or I've seen, I've never, ever seen them ever again use the full quote here and say, who has means? This seems deeply dishonest. It seems a form of gaslighting. It seems like a form of manipulation. And once one grasps the pressure local leaders feel to impose 10% of gross on the members, so a bishop to his ward, a stake president to his stake, you can't have one without the other. This is where they get their understanding that interest means income, I think. And they seem to only want to share the quote in part because they don't want members having the full quote, which I think is crucial to understanding what Lorenzo Snow was trying to suggest. Yeah. And if Count Dracula had used those three words in his general conference talk, he would never have been able to tell that story or say that you have to pay, choose between paying your tithing sometimes or feeding your kids. Yes. All right. There is ten dollars. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> One, two, three. I love to count. <laughs> All right. So now we're going to move on to how it moves going forward. We're going to start with some handbooks. Um, here's the quote hmm. up close, by the way. I plead with you in the name of the Lord, and I pray that every man, woman, and child who has means shall pay one-tenth of their income annually that general conference address, uh, including all the others from 1899, will be included in the resource notes as well. Now we go to the handbooks, and we use these in fair use. So this is a 19. What was that? What was that again, Bill? What fair are we using use. What that means is that if we I've never are heard giving, of that, that means if we're giving commentary, criticism, research, scholarship, or education in any form, as long as we only use the pertinent parts. We have a right to use any document that exists out there unless there is any sort of special uh, limitation to it. For instance, if I got caught with private government documents at my home, that would be an issue. That's a whole different set of rules. But I can certainly be able to share things like this. So this is the 1913 Church Handbook of Instruction. They don't define tithing at all, by the way. I won't be able to share these documents with you because I don't know that that's allowed. When I told folks that I was going to be doing an episode on tithing, I had some folks share with me the pertinent images from the handbooks we're going to show. So I will not have the full handbook in the notes as I don't believe that that is uh, within copyright rules to do so. Uh, 
So when they go into tithing, they don't define it at all. But what they do say is in the bottom section, when a payment should be made, the proper time to pay a tithe is when one's income is received. So they're not defining tithing, but they seem to be suggesting with a little bit of pressure that tithing would be on one's income. And to note, this is 1913, so we're 14 years after Lorenzo Snow. It seems like the shift is really starting to happen where in the correlated material, instead of speaking of tithing as surplus, which it used to be, or interest on one's investments, it is now turning into 10% of gross, but very slowly and subtly. And you'll remember the church had a very deep racist past. Then there's a time period where the church goes sort of silent, allows a generation to come and go, and now they have a little more room to do something different without the past generation holding them accountable to the way in which they did things before. And I'm starting to see the same thing happen here. Bill, can I mention that in that paragraph above the same page where it says labor tithing, which is a lot of people, you know, you work for somebody else, you work for the government, you work for whoever, and you get your wages, just like um, I almost said Henry Aaron, but Henry <laughs> gets from the church. Um, it says that all might have the privilege of paying tithes. Notice how it's becoming a privilege and we're extending it to all because, you know, we're such a great church. The contribution of one tenth of a person's working hours or days has always been accepted as a legitimate payment. Well, I'm sure it's always been accepted as a legitimate payment, but it has not always been required as a legitimate payment. In fact, if you're a wage earner who you need all the money you have in order to make ends meet, then you're not supposed to be paying a tithing at all. Yeah. And the idea that all might have the privilege of paying tithes violates the statement of who has means. Exactly. Okay. Now we're into the 1923 handbook and they do essentially the same thing. Uh, it talks about tithing at the top. It then says the proper time to pay tithes is when one's income is received. Uh, they talk about those who are exempt. I thought it was strange. Aged persons without incomes, women whose husbands are not members of the church. Notice that's changed. Women who husbands are not members of the church are not exempt from the law of tithing today. If they make their own income, they should pay tithing. It, here, aged persons without income or women whose husbands are not members of the church because we can't have those non-member husbands telling their wives that they're, you know, they're paying tithing and shouldn't be. So there's some sort of sexism and patriarchy involved there where the church is respecting the opinion of the working husband who's not a member over the woman, the wife in the home who is. Um, and so I thought that was interesting. It is. And uh, something else where they're going along with the same lines of trying to get everybody to pay it. By the way, looking at this, I find myself blessed to have been baptized in 1978 because apparently back in the 1920s, tithing settlement was not once a year around Christmas. It was every freaking month, according to this. Every but it month. does say every month you get your tithing settlement with the bishop. The ward members, quoting from the same uh, handbook, the ward members should be notified of this time and place by public announcement, and all members of the church should be encouraged to make a monthly settlement of their tithes. Yeah. All right. So now we move from 1923 to 1944. 
This is the only section on tithing. They're trying to reduce it. Again, it makes sense. You see the church expound on a doctrine and change it. You see them then pull back and make it shorter. And you'll see that happen back and forth in these handbooks. Who should pay tithing? You would think, by the way, if Heavenly Father really does speak to these guys, you should be able to put out a handbook and stick with it. Well, especially when you're talking about laws that are supposed to be standing forever. Standing laws forever. Who should pay tithing? Members of the church who have any income or increase. Now they're two different subjects. From property who or who receive wages, salaries, or gifts should pay one-tenth of their increase annually. Um, children over eight, blah, blah, blah. Age persons without income, women who have no income separate from those of their husbands. Now it's separate. Children who have no individual source of revenue and persons entirely dependent on relief are exempt from the payment of tithing. This is really interesting to me because we know about the 1899 use of income by Lorenzo Snow that we already read. And by the way, Rock Waterman weighed in with a comment and he was posting that his understanding, and he's researched a lot of this, is that income and interest were understood as synonymous back in the 19th century. Of course, it isn't today. <clears throat> but what it does say here is we're getting income once again in this definition. But it says members of the church who have any income or increase from property, right? So if you've got rentals and you're renting out property or farmland or orchards or whatever you've got, that counts as part of your your income. Yeah, we get that. If you have income or increase from property or who receive wages, salaries or gifts should pay one tenth of their increase annually. Now, at least they don't try and define what increase means. And they do say increase citing to DNC 1194, which we've already read, without trying to make it income, but they have stuck the word income earlier into this definition with regards to property. But we're going to see, I think, over the course of time, that word income assume greater importance in the definition of tithing. Notice here that they reference DNC 119 verse 4, and they keep using the similar language of that verse in that paragraph but notice they do not use the word interest, which is the actual word from the DNC verse four. They keep using the words increase and income. They completely avoid using the actual language of Doctrine and Covenants 119. They shall pay one-tenth of their interest annually. Notice they've Excellent removed interest point. and in quote and in quotations, they've substituted it for the word increase. Wow. 1960, tithes. Who should pay tithing? Church members should pay one-tenth of their interest, income. What? Annually. What? Yeah, They've got interest. income now. In, this is it. This is it. I'm sorry, Bill. I'm getting excited here. Yeah. But now they say should pay one-tenth of their interest where they use the correct word from DNC 119.4. Finally, they use the correct word. But then in parentheses, right after interest, they put income because they're going to define this word for you in a way that it is not used in the revelation and which in fact is going to subvert the meaning of the revelation of the standing law forever. If, right. if a, if a doctrine isn't a standing law forever, then there's no such thing as doctrine in this church, which makes elder Anderson's that doctrine's not hard to find complete bullshit. Well, this is from 1960. So apparently forever in the, in Mormon doctrine forever is defined as 130 years. Yeah. Apparently, the, the God of all eternity to eternity 
seems to not be able to make his mind for, up his mind from handbook to handbook. The shelf life of eternal doctrines that stand forever is 130 years. You heard it here first, folks. And maybe only the distance between one handbook to the next. Mm, yes. Well, why do we need new handbooks if we're not going to change them? Yeah. All right. Next one is, this is a handbook from 1963. Three years uh, later? Yeah. Who should pay? Which, by the way, man, three years, that handbook was out of date. You know, prophets, seers, and revelators. And three years later, we better do this again. We've got some things wrong. Yes. Got to correct it. Who should pay tithing? Uh, church members should pay one-tenth of their interest, again, income annually into tithing of the church. Those without income, again, for the most part, it is uh, it is explained the same way, except when you go down now, now they're going to define tithing for you. What is a tithe? A tithe is one-tenth of a wage earner's gross income. A tithe is one-tenth of a professional man's income after deducting standard business expenses. Uh, you and I talked about this. Well, that can, can you go back for a second? So that now they're going to define what is a tithe, and it says a tithe is one-tenth of a wage earner's gross income. They That's actually the language blatantly. they used in 1963? Yes. Gross income. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I, I was seeing that correctly. Yeah, who has means, and if the man, woman, or child shall do all that they can to take care of their needs, they're not tithed at all, and now we have it, the, the explicit saying that it is ten, one-tenth of a wage earner's gross income. It's no wonder all members of the church have confusing understanding of what's been said. You have some members going like it's on your gross or your net. Do you want gross blessings? Do you want net blessings? You have folks who understand the history, and they're talking about surplus. And some people go, nope, it's 10% of gross. Even though the church doesn't say it that way, you now recognize what their memory goes back to, which is at one time the church did define tithing as 10% of gross. Um, please. Mo asks an interesting question here, Bill. Is the word gross in this pamphlet emphasized? Is that bold? It's, it's I, like it's bolded. It does look like it's bolded. There's a little bit of, um, uh, at the top of each subsection, there's something in italics, who should pay tithing? What is a tithe? But the one bolded word that I can see on this entire page is gross. Yes. A tithe is one-tenth of a wage earner's gross income. And then they say one-tenth of a professional man's income after deducting standard business expenses. You and I were talking about this. Those two statements are really the same. If, if folks would understand, a professional businessman is going to pay all of his company expenses. Then he's going to take the rest of the money home as his income. And now he's going to pay one-tenth of that. So to me, at least in comparison to those two sentences, those are fair. Well, yeah, except for the fact that apparently the farmers had a good lobby with the first yeah. presidency yeah, yeah. because a, far a farmer should not a farmer should not include as standard business operating expense the produce which is used to sustain his family, right? So he gets to take that off of his tithing. But if you're a wage earner, screw you, pal. It's gross, regardless of what you're using it for. Yeah, the farmer's paying somewhere between net and surplus. The businessman and the uh, average U.S. citizen were expected to pay, essentially pay 10% of their gross income. The businessman gets to pay his business expenses first. I hope that was clear enough. What I'm saying is that the wage earner, he has to pay off his gross, and then he has to pay his family. Mm -hmm. The farmer gets to feed their family, or gets to feed his family, if I said pay his family, gets to feed his family. But the farmer gets to feed his family before he pays his tithing. Yeah. 
Isn't it strange how this standing law forever means so many things and not even at the same time does it mean the same thing to all people? Mm. Oh, the farmer and the cowman should be friends. Yeah, so you get that. A farmer should not include, da, 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 we already said that, a tithe is one-tenth of an individual's interest. They throw that in at the end, but they've already contradicted it with the entire wording of the entire section above it. Hmm. Amazing. Right. 1968. Um, tithes. Yeah, in the 1960s, they're popping these handbooks out like popcorn, aren't they? By the way, I want you to notice, in 1963, for the very first time, they define tithing explicitly. Five years later, they retract it. They probably got some pushback. Probably, you know, so I mean, please. Yeah, what is this? Do they issue a handbook every time a Kennedy gets assassinated? Something like that. So if you go down to section B at the very bottom, what tithing is? Folks, we're no longer going to say anything. See Doctrine and Covenants section 119. <laughs> <laughs> Too soon. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Then we suddenly get this thing, and this is the thing that seems to be sort of used. Again, I'll say sort of, because they played the obfuscation game like they always do. In Wait a 19- second. Is that Joseph Fielding Smith? That is Joseph Fielding Smith. I'll bet I know what he's holding in that little file in his hand. He's got 18. the 1832 account in the first vision, baby. <laughs> it's in there. He's laughing at us. Look at that look on his face. I got it right here, and you can't see it because I'm the president now. There's no higher authority to appeal to. He also has those other four leaves with eight pages that are also missing from that 1832 letter book in there. He is mocking us. <laughs> he is I got it. With- you can't see it, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's the uh, the title for this picture. Yeah. He's with his two counselors, Harold B. Lee and N. Eldon Tanner. In 1970, a first presidency letter was sent out. Dear brethren, and I have to imagine, again, 1963, it gets defined There are people in the church who are old enough to remember that this isn't the way we used to do business. And suddenly this- Joseph Fielding Smith looks old enough to remember pterodactyls. Joseph Fielding Smith was there when John W. Taylor got excommunicated. (laughs) He probably probably killed Joseph Smith along with John Taylor in Carthage jail. There, There are rumors flying everywhere, aren't there? Oh, yeah. 1970, first presidency letter, March 19th, 1970. Dear brethren- Inquiries are received at the office of the First Presidency from time to time from officers and members of the church asking for information as to what is considered a proper tithe. No wonder, by the way, people are confused because left and right, these guys keep saying it differently, and none of it matches the way the law was originally given or how the first bishop of the church did it or how the Millennial Star in 1847 or how Lorenzo Snow in 1899 did it. They're constantly moving and shifting. It's no wonder members have questions. And so they, did you get to the last line? I was busy laughing too much. No, I'm no, sorry. I haven't I even read the, I haven't read the big paragraph feel, yet. This is, we feel, this is where they throw up their hands and say, hell if we know, figure it out yourself. Yeah. So the middle paragraph for your guidance in this matter, please be advised that we have uniformly, no, you haven't. That's a lie. That's a lie. We have uniformly replied that the simplest statement we know of is the statement of the Lord himself, namely that the members of the church should pay one-tenth of their interest annually. Again, surplus advantage, which is understood, again, 1899 Lorenzo Snow, which is understood to mean income. Again, notice they leave out who has means. Can I just say, I find it absolutely delightful that they say the best we can do is tell you what the Lord said, but we're going to add a word to what the Lord said. 
Yeah, they add a whole freaking sentence, don't they? Which is understood yeah. to mean income. Interest, which is understood to mean income. So the Lord didn't quite say it good enough. So we're going to say, we can't say it any better than the Lord, except for this. Yes. And can anybody, uh, Rock, uh, feel free to show me an example. I would love anybody's input on the word interest in the 1830s, meaning someone's complete income without anything being paid first. Um, I don't know that such exists, and I would welcome that. But at least that would give us some room to go, this is why they're fiddling with it. Um, notice, and you said, no one is justified in making any other statement than this. But if I go back and look at the last 10 handbooks, they've done that very thing. Yes. Yeah. We can do it. Just you can't do it. When we read, say no one, we mean everybody but us. Read this last sentence you love. This is where they do it. It's a toss up. We feel that every member of the church is entitled to make his own decision as to what he thinks he owes the Lord and to make payment accordingly because we have got no freaking clue. Isn't it, doesn't it seem as though they're getting so much pushback from the definition they'd like to impose that they're trying to leave an out for anybody who's smart enough to figure out doing it differently? You know, I don't know. I think that what they do is they get all these questions about all these different fact situations, whether it's a gift, whether somebody gets a scholarship, whether they get this or that, or <laughs> any of the hundred different kinds of ways that you can have income come to you. And they are tired of saying, you know, we're going to have to actually create a tax code for tithing before long. We've gone a certain way down that road. We're pulling back now and we're not going to do this anymore. It's on you. You figure it out. If you want to pay, if grandma gives you a hundred dollars for your birthday, you got to pay 10 bucks on that. You figure that out. We're not going to get involved in that anymore. Look what Mo thinks. Lo, Mo says this is one of those moments where they're doing a, a loose translation. <laughs> <laughs> Mo cracks me up. Uh, there's the Lord giving a loose translation. Sincerely, your brethren, Joseph Fielding Smith, Harold B. Lee, and N. Eldon Tanner. So then we get to 1976. Uh, here's the cover of the handbook. Here's the pages that it's on. I put a red line around it, and then I cut that out and make it bigger so that you can see it. What tithing is, here they go. Now they're going to use that 1970 letter. And it is that whole idea, one-tenth of your interest annually. No one's going to say more or less, but we're going to go ahead and add extra, which is it is understood to mean income because we're going to use 1899 Lorenzo Snow, but we're going to leave out a crucial part of Lorenzo Snow's statement so that all of you are left with gaslighting and confusion. No one right, is it's like no hot drinks in section 89, the word of wisdom, which is understood to mean coffee and tea. Yeah, which is understood to mean income is the contradiction to no one is justified in making any other statement than Doctrine and Covenants section 119. Yes. Yeah. No one is justified in making any other statement than the addition we've made to what God said. I'm beginning to think that the apostate <laughs> I'm beginning to think that the apostates of the church take Heavenly Father much more seriously than the top 15 of the church have from generation to generation. They seem to have a pragmatic approach to the revelations. Yeah, the, you know, just willy-nilly. Again, loose translation. Who should pay tithing? Uh, one-tenth of their, all church members should pay one-tenth of their interest income annually into the tithing funds of the church, members without income, and members entirely with the following exceptions, yep. with the following exceptions, right? Members without income and members entirely dependent upon welfare assistance, mm -hmm. okay, and missionaries on full-time missions. However, by the way, missionaries should pay tithing on any personal income beyond what they receive for support from families and others. So I guess those are those 
stock options yeah. that missionaries are famous for having. Yeah. Okay. 1983. Um, this one's going to be a little smaller. I don't think I have a close up of this one. Uh, but 1983, let's see here. The first presidency, it's the same thing. They're quoting the 1970 letter. No one's justified in making another statement. They do say interest, which means income. Um, who should pay tithing? Pretty much the same rules there. So we'll move forward. 1989, definition of tithing. The first presidency writes the simplest statement we know of, um, of their interest annually, which is understood to mean income. No one is justified in making any other statement than this. By the way, notice they keep leaving off the sentence, we feel that every member of the church is entitled to make his own decision as to what he thinks he owes the Lord and to make payment accordingly. In every one of these, I don't think it's in there. Nope, not there. Not yeah. there. 76. Not and then 83. There. Nope. And 89. Yeah. No, that middle paragraph uh, assumes a life of its own. And the last paragraph about you have the freedom to decide yourself, that gets thrown away. That goes down the memory hole. Gone. 1989. So now, oop, I don't know why that, oh, let's see here. Yeah, we talked about the, the statement being removed. So we'll just move on. Oh, by the way, I just want to note here, which is understood to mean income, that shouldn't be said at all. Again, if you're going to honor the no one is justified in making any other statement than what the Lord has said in DNC, that should be gone. And I would actually be okay with this. I understand they're still manipulating by trying to suggest that interest is income. But if they say no one's allowed to make any more than what DNC says, and that every member is allowed to make their own choice about what a full tithing is and to pay it accordingly, that feels like they would be keeping with the spirit of Doctrine and Covenants 119. Yeah, I think so. And then just a note here, you and I were talking, and maybe you want to talk about this uh, part, but this is the Joseph uh, F. Smith uh, in reference to uh, tithing, and you had some historical background on what's going on at the time here. Only that this is the, uh, the statement by Joseph F. Smith in 1907, where he says, uh, furthermore, I want to say to you, we may not be able to reach it right away, but we expect to see the day when we will not have to ask you for one dollar of donation for any purpose, except that which you volunteer to give of your own accord, because we will have tithes sufficient in the storehouse of the Lord to pay everything that is needful for the advancement of the kingdom of God. I want to live to see that day if the Lord will spare my life. So far as, uh, okay, sorry. I was just thinking about how old, he, how old he was at this time. It does not make any difference though, so far as that is concerned, whether I live or not, that, that is the true policy. That is the true policy, Bill. The true purpose of the Lord in the management of the affairs of his kingdom. So that's 1907. And so, I'm familiar with this now, but in this context, it assumed a different significance to me that in 1899, Lorenzo Snow had kind of put the screws to the membership of the church, the shakedown on him because they needed more money to get the church out of uh, the huge debt it was in and facing insolvency. And so he changed his interest to income, right? And then eight years later in 1907, Joseph F. Smith, who's now the president, gives this statement. It sounds to me like he is responding to pushback that he's experiencing from members of the church about, you know, this is kind of a burden, this new thing that uh, Lorenzo Snow put on us, changing interest to income, and we're not really liking it, but it's all the turtles under Yertle, right? We're grumbling about 
being in this huge stack and having Yertle on top. And so I think that there must have been some reason for him to issue this statement. And that may have something to do with it. And yet, I know you're going to have a few comments about this. I was looking at another outline right before the show, Bill. Mm -hmm. Turns out that at least according to this outline, in 1907 was the year that the church did get its debts paid off. Make of that what you will. Um, and wasn't it, was it Henry D. Moyle who almost bankrupted the church? Yeah. Another famous Hank. That was in the 1960s. Yeah. If you build them, they will come with regard to chapels and ward buildings throughout the world. So you get this point where the, oh, go ahead, Maven. I was just going to say, I, it didn't work for chapels, but I think Nelson's pretty sure it's going to work for temples. Well, it's not going to bankrupt the church, at least, because they could build all the temples they're building on a portion of the actual income they have from tithing without even touching their massive amount of over $100 billion, yes, it's billion with a B, dollars, that they have in the bank without even touching that or the interest. That's true. From so it. this time, people really will come. I think that's the difference, is the money. Oh, <laughs> I think so. so. The temples I are going to start gonna, filling up any moment now. They're going to fill up. It's going to be magic, and everybody's going to be happy. When I read this quote, and it seems pretty obvious, he's saying there will be a day where the church has enough money that no one will be required to pay tithing anymore, correct? Yes, yes, that's what he said. He said that's the true policy and the true purpose of the Lord. This is Joseph F. Smith, the president of the church. And how much money does the church have saved up today? Well, it's hard to tell because they won't they won't reveal that. But it's around oh at least one hundred and twenty billion dollars. That's conservative. Yes. So if that's not enough, how much? Because again, if they are being wise with that hundred and twenty billion, it should also incur interest. Correct. Oh, absolutely. And it does. And it's a whole lot when you start when you have one hundred and twenty billion dollars in the bank. The interest becomes larger than what I have in the bank. Yeah, yeah, by far. So yeah. if if the money they currently have is not enough for this prophecy to be revealed, in other words, they have 120 billion, they have 150 billion, they have 180 billion, whatever it is, if they still think that's not enough, how much do you think it would take to be enough? Well, this is the, the problem that the New Testament and Paul talks about that the love of money is the root of all evil. I mean, I never understood the New Testament until I've seen the way the LDS church is acting with regard to its finances. They are hoarding money. The pursuit of money has become a goal in and of itself. And when Jesus says, you cannot love God and mammon, I never understood that scripture until I looked at what the LDS church is doing with its members' money. Joseph F. Smith seems to be prophesying that a day will come when the church will have enough that it won't need the tithing from the members. It, oh, yeah. He's saying it, it right, right there. Yeah. We know that it has over $100 billion and probably at this point closer to 150, maybe even up above that. In spite of that, maybe they would claim that they don't have enough yet. The problem is David A. Bednar told us they did. David A. Bednar at a National Press Club, and I don't have the audio here handy, but I do have his quote. National Press Club, live feed, he said, quote, the church doesn't need their money. 
but those people need the blessings that come from following God's commandment. This is a complete contradiction of, of Joseph F. Smith. Joseph F. Smith said there will be a day where you we don't need it. Notice what he said. The church doesn't need their money. He said a day will come when they don't need it. Um, let's and what see. happens then, according to Joseph F. Smith? Then you can, we won't require anything of you, just you can give us whatever you feel like. And Bednar says that we're going to require it anyway because you need to pay it forever. He is giving something very different than what, what Joseph S. Smith is saying. And that is the difference between 1907 and 2022. By the way, it, it pops into my head that when your faith is in money, you can never have enough. But when your faith is in God, you always have enough. Mm. Interesting. Yep. All right. So, um, and then Maven, if you want to come back on and talk about what, what this is next. Sorry. Yep. Here comes Maven. Here comes Maven. I was just going to say, by the way, that's not my own personal take on things. That's my recapitulation of what I get out of the New Testament and the message of Jesus. Yeah. Um, I So I edited this a little bit um, just to make it shorter, but this was a comment in the Reddit. And I did ask permission just in case some, you know, this person might have been worried about the details they gave, you know, being identifying and they did ask for their uh, username to be taken out. But um, I'll just go ahead and read it. Uh, I was uh, as dedicated as a Mormon could be. I worked overtime because I missed a tithing payment and wanted extra money in the next paycheck to cover that. For years I paid. Double your tithing, double your blessings is hmm. still taught. Where does that I, come from? Yeah. Hmm. I kept a prayer in my heart at all times. I was a dedicated missionary that worked through an injury I sustained on the mission, has taken five surgeries to fix, and the church weaseled out of covering medical costs while I still had the tag on. I was the pinnacle of Mormon faith and obedience. One fateful night, I was fulfilling my calling, one of three that I had at the time, by closing up the church building. At this time, my wife and I had a very young baby. I had just lost my job, and tithing was still paid. Checking the building, I made sure that nobody else was in there. I walked into the bishop's office to write them a note to remind them to lock the office. As I started to write on the post-it note, the computer screen woke up. On the screen was a tithing report for the ward, a ward I knew very well, and nobody was rich. The overwhelming majority were just getting their families, careers, or schooling started. This tithing report wasn't even complete yet and was recording $2.5 million for the year. My shelf shattered then and there. That money could have done so much for the good people there who were still generous with the little they had left, but instead it fed the hedge fund. That's not even the best part. The best part was less than a month after I was in a meeting with the stake president because they, they were in the elders uh, quorum presidency, um, I guess is one of those three callings. Our beloved stake president berated the leaders about tithing. He berated the stake later and he berated the stake later about tithing and how we needed to exercise faith and pay more. We had one of the oldest, crappiest buildings in Mormonism. We had some complaints about things like water leaks, failed air conditioners, and other major problems. They were fixed with the equivalent of tape and construction paper. Our stake president's building was in pristine condition. He was a multimillionaire himself, and the ward around the stake center was equally affluent. And if you remember, so. uh, Leonard Arrington reported to us that folks who were in the top 10 to 15% of tithe payers is who they select from to be in the stake presidency. There's a, I just want to share this actually, a Facebook comment 
My siblings to school and while our mother took a job to keep current on her tithing while we were left home alone many days with my seven-year-old sister babysitting my four-year-old brother while she was away to Relief Society. Yep. Mm. There's tons of awful tithing stories. Thanks for sharing. Where's something that occurs to me, although I've never been a stake president, is I know that bishops have to, re we all know about home teaching, right? Home teachers, I'll use the old expression, ministers is just so non-descriptive of what really happens. But home teachers, home teachers have to report it to their supervisor who reports it to the elders quorum or the high priest who reports it up to the stake president, and it doesn't stop there, right? The state president now has to report that to his area authority and it goes on up the chain. It's just out of sight from the average member. And I have got a feeling, a very strong feeling, Maven, that that same kind of PPI with the state president and his area 70 supervisor goes on about tithing as well. And why is your tithing below what it should be? And you need to increase those numbers if you want to stay in good graces with the church and perhaps have the ability to get promoted beyond the stake president phase of things. Yep. As a bishop, the stake president was at times communicating to us, fast offerings are low, tithings low. Like, yes, that kind of conversation certainly occurs. And as a bishop, you were well aware, you know, you had those numbers in front of you for tithing settlements. So you knew what somebody paid and you knew that the uh, Lord's interpretation was 10% of gross in spite of what we shared tonight. And so there's pressure and manipulation all along the way. And as, and as you see, the definition changes willy-nilly all the time anyway. By the way, where does that double tithing come from? Oh, George Q. Cannon. George, George Q. Cannon. Mm. Yeah. And even in the modern moment, that gets reemphasized, doesn't it? It does by Wendy Watson Nelson from January of 2016, the BYU Hawaii address where she talked for 10 minutes and said a number of fascinating things, which got largely overshadowed by her husband taking the stand immediately after and calling the policy against families uh, revelation. Hmm. Do you when have that? to have more money? We eagerly follow the Lord's law of finance finances, which is, of course, tithing. Consider President George Q. Cannon's approach to tithing when he was an impoverished young man. When his bishop commented on the large amount of tithing poor young George was paying, George said something like, Oh, Bishop, I'm not paying tithing on what I make. I'm paying tithing on what I want to make. And the very next year, George earned exactly the amount of money he had paid tithing on the year before. Hmm. Okay, so that's problematic on its face, I think. I mean, it was back in the 1970s. Bill, I don't know if you know about this, but there was a very popular book among missionaries and others called Drawing on the Powers of Heaven by a fellow named, what was his name? Grant Vaughn something or other. Bismarck, not, not no, Stone, Harrison, right? I think it was Grant Von Harrison or something like that, but it was drawing on the powers of heaven and it was in my mission. Other missionaries had it. I got it. You read through it. And what it says is it's a total quid pro quo deal. We got going with God. You do what you're supposed to do. He's bound to give you the blessings. And this sounds exactly like that. It's the, um, what do they call it? The, uh, when you put the, the quarter in the machine to get something, the transactional idea of God and yeah. blessings. This idea, okay, if you pay your tithing, perfect, but if you pay double tithing, 
because you're paying the amount of what you want to receive, then God is the next year going to give you twice the amount of what you're making today. So what could be a better investment than that, Wendy, from the Never Even Once Club? But really, really, what's going on here? I think, I think what may be going on here is even more subtle than that. What if George Q. Cannon, when he's talking, which is from, I think, 1872 or so, I found the talk here. Uh, it was republished in the Deseret Evening News. And, um, well, I can't remember exa exactly when it was. Maybe it was 1899. I think it was 1899, which would be two years before George Q. Cannon passed away in 1901. But he's giving this talk about tithing. He's relating this experience. When he was a young man, it didn't happen yesterday. It's not from 1899. It's from probably 50 years, possibly 60 years before this. So at a minimum, we can talk roughly in the mid-19th century. But the thing I'm investigating or suggesting is that George Q. Cannon is using in the mid-19th century a very different definition of tithing that the church promoted and taught at that time. It's not the 21st century definition of tithing, which we've had through most of the 20th century as well, but it's the 20th century in which Wendy Watson is speaking. So it is possible there's a shifting definition going on here and that George Buchanan may be talking about, well, let's see, if I'm worth $1,000, then $6 at the going rate would be my tithing. So instead of paying $6, I paid $12, okay? But this now gets used and transferred to the present day with the present teaching about tithing and what Wendy Watson is talking about, I'm sorry, Wendy Nelson is talking about, is paying 20% of your gross income, which is likely very different from what George Buchanan was talking about. Right. Yeah. And then, again, this is just bringing up privilege i think if you are able even if, you know if we were to take the modern day def definition there are so many people that aren't doing well already they're not seeing the blessings their cup is not exactly running over as directly promised by paying the 10 percent tithing so uh, there's so many that 20 percent just would be completely unlivable so i just think if if for some for wendy to say something like that as a prescription for anyone else to do. I just, I, this speaks to, I think, a great amount of privilege that she has. I don't think she was ever like me. I don't think she ever struggled like me. And she never married and had children. So she never had a young family to be uh, trying to feed and, and care for. And, you know, so everything, you know, so I feel like, first of all, like she's been pretty well off as a single woman and she's been able to provide for her needs fairly well without anything without ex extra expenses from a family so she's able to save and you know and, and continue to build that wealth so she can buy her fancy blazer suits you know for her trips with the profit so yeah it's just it's so frustrating to see stuff like that. i think that i think that's a great point because really what she's encouraging is impoverishment of the individual so that the church can continue to be enriched Right. Mm. And, and just to hoard it because there's so much of it that they're not even doing anything with. It's literally just going in funds to just build up massive uh, amounts of money. And I, you know, I don't know George Q. Cannon's circumstances either. And even if we are saying that he was paying tithing under a different, you know, kind of a system, um, he's, he, had, he was a young man. So I, how much expenses did he have? Was he living at home? 
you know, did, was he paying for his own clothes and food or was his mom still, you know, cooking everything? You know, what what expenses did he have? I'm pretty sure he didn't have a car payment. I'm pretty sure he didn't have a cell phone payment. I'm pretty sure he didn't have, um, you know, medical bills that, you know, take forever to pay off because insurance is crappy. You know, like, I just, I just really wonder how much expenses that he had. And really, like, I, I, I'm curious and I'm sure we'll never know. What is that dollar amount? You know, if he's paying double what he's expecting, is that like $5 in 1870s money, which is like, I know, $200 today's money or something, you know, like that's def that's different than what we're expected to pay. So anyway, it is a faith promoting story. I don't expect there's a lot of truth to it, but to the extent that there is truth to it, maybe it did happen. I don't know. I wasn't there. He says it did. But. If there are any faithful members who are listening to the show, you can test this promise easily. This year, pay double your tithing, pay 20%, and then see if God blesses you next year to get twice the amount of income that you had this year. It's a very simple test. You can yeah. put this to the test and see if Wendy and George are correct. And I'm willing to bet right now that you're going to find something different than what they promise. By the way, if you did that, if you paid twice your tithing, hoping that the next year's income would be as, as much as it you're hoping it would, no one's going to have a problem with you doing that. If you pay tithing the way the church defined it in Revelation in section 119 and pay 10% of your surplus income, you bet your ass you're going to be in trouble if you try to pay it that way. And I also want to note one other little interesting story. Let me put this here. Um, we'll go back here for a moment to this. Um, One-tenth part of, of his annual increase ever after, if it requires all a man can earn to support himself and family, he is not tithed at all. And then it continues to say that you would still be a partaker of celestial glory by following the celestial law, even though you're not paying any tithing. And then I want to compare that but with something President Nelson said, which is very different. Um, I couldn't get this in the original uh, Deseret News because if I click it, for instance, Deseret News seems like they don't really want to hold on to things that are problematic. So it's not there anymore. Wait but, a second. Are you saying yeah. that there's an article with a, about President Nelson's visit to Kenya and his teaching to the saints there that was in the yeah. Deseret News that is no longer there? It's no longer there, huh? This this idea that the church is hiding something, that, which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time. I am not a crook. There has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. But luckily, not only does Meridian Magazine report on it, but it's also been tracked in multiple other places. In Let's see if we can get a date here. Um, April 16th, 2018, President Nelson went to Kenya in East Africa. And here's what he said. We preach tithing to the people of the world because the poor people of the world have had cycles of poverty. Generation after generation, he said. That same poverty continues one generation to another until the people pay tithing. I cannot think 
of anything more abusive than going to a developing country and where people are starving to death and having having to really struggle just to have enough for the next day and then telling people that the only way they'll ever get out of poverty is by scratching you know their thumbs together and hoping they can come up with 10% of their money it's it's when you understand the people here and the situation they're in when you understand why this is a much better healthier doctrine and then to have nelson telling people that that poverty will exist until you start paying your tithing. You, you and I, again, we can do a science experiment. You just named one with George Q. Cannon. Let me say this as well. George Q. Cannon is offering his own faithful addition to what's required. To take a saint in the church who goes above and beyond and then tell their story as a way to pressure everyone to do the same is deeply unethical and abusive. But whereas... Uh, George Q. Cannon is paying double his money. You recognize that these folks can't, again, you could do the test, just like you said with George Q. Cannon. You can have the people of Africa pay their tithing. And 100 years from now, 150 years from now, the likelihood is that there's still going to be people starving in the same sorts of circumstances that they are today. Yeah. Yeah, I don't President think Nelson. there's... Oh, sorry, Maven, go ahead. No, I was just saying, I don't think... This is another one of the things that now on on this side of Mormonism, I realized just how easily and just cavalierly leaders of the church can make promises like this with zero evidence of any kind backing it up anywhere, not even in the church's own history. It would be one thing, even if I, I would still highly doubt the, the anecdote, but if they said, hey, you know, this specific country over here, you know, we told the Ghanaian state, the, the Ghanaian states to, I can't talk today, to pay their tithing and they did. And, and look, now Ghana is, is way more prosperous and you guys were equal, but now they're way up here and it's their tithing. You know, I would still be highly suspicious of that, but that would be even something. But the, the church is the same with the family proclamation when it comes to their very specific uh, exclusionary limited view of what a family is that somehow if you don't have that catastrophes will happen across the nation across the world it's just outlandish just these extreme claims that they can make and they can just make them because they're the prophet they just they could just say whatever like that and i i wanted to say when you're talking about the test of like doing you know double tightening or whatever i want to say it's it's already there in the scriptures and the doctrine a, a, a test um and a blessing for just paying your regular tithing. And that is that the Lord is supposed to open the windows of heaven and pour you out such a blessing that your your cup runneth over. There's not room enough to receive it and does not happen over and over and over. We keep seeing that for tons of people. There's quite a bit of extra space available in the cup for blessings. I see that with my, my own family um, in my own life. And then I wanted to pull up uh, this quote here um uh with amberly and and this is the uh you know god also rewards us with spiritual blessings and of course amberly's you know she's um not portraying this as a yeah, tbm yeah, but you know as what yeah because th this is what is said and this is also what i believed that you know tithing isn't a promise of getting physical like actual money it could be lots of things that you know maybe my health is better this year and i don't end up with an expensive er visit that i totally would have had otherwise but there's no way to know or prove or falsify that anyway back to her quote god rewards us with spiritual blessings if your double tithing doesn't equal double salary it's because you're being blessed in other ways but um i i wanted to say like even that also isn't 
true and I think provably untrue for a lot of people. So maybe maybe they're paying their tithing, you know, they're not getting, they're still struggling financially. And, you know, when I was struggling financially the most, my health was also really bad. My energy levels were really bad. I was pretty depressed. I, I worked uh, full time and I even, I mean, often I would have more than one job, but in between jobs, I would just sleep. And that's all that I just had like mental energy for. And I don't know, I just, my mental health was not in a good state. So, you know, if I, there's, the Lord wants to bless me in other ways for paying tithing, that would have been really helpful because even if, uh, even if I wasn't getting money that I desperately needed, if I at least had a, I was in a good mental state, I would have been a, a lot easier to find jobs that paid more money because when you're depressed and you work a really shitty job in like a call center that you hate and you just, you feel bad about yourself and your ability to actually earn an income anyway that when you do start looking for jobs like you, you just feel like there's no way um you know it, it just it just makes everything so much more difficult but even that just one thing again if we're not expecting a specific dollars if we're not trying to be exactly transactional with god here even though he promised he made this promise that this is what he would give us um that would have been extremely helpful to me at the time that would have been enough to help out and kind of make up for the, the financial blessings that I was struggling with and needed. So that's my rant on that. Totally. Um, I was just going to say three things here. First off, I think that uh, President Nelson's new motto with that is double your tithing, double your fun. That's one so, thing. On a little bit more serious note. Yeah. If you go, if you take hit what he says, at face value, then the logical corollary to what he said is that no country in the history of the world has ever raised itself out of poverty without paying tithing to the LDS church. Say that again. If you can put that quote back up from uh, LDS Living since they've taken it down from Deseret News. Yeah, give me a second here. I gotta find and the last thing is, President Nelson has no excuse. He is one of the few people on the face of the earth who actually knows how much is in the EPA account when he is saying this kind of stuff. He doesn't get this pseudo pass that apostles might have because they don't know because they're kept in the dark, except now it's public knowledge, so they don't even get that pass. This is what President Nelson said. You just quoted it. We preach tithing to the poor people of the world because the poor people of the world have had cycles of poverty generation after generation. That same poverty continues from one generation to another until people pay their tithing. President Nelson, the logical corollary to that is that no country in the history of the world has raised itself out of poverty without paying tithing to the LDS church. Are you sure you want to persist in the truth of that statement? Yeah, it is absurd when you actually take it literally, isn't it? Yes. Like most of the things they say. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so wrapping up, I did open the phone lines. You're welcome to uh, try and call, but I do have three calls in the bank right now, so unless one of those drops off, that'll probably be all we take. Um, what I want to finish saying is this. Knowing that what these words mean, knowing how, knowing how they were interpreted, knowing how they were implemented and carried out, imposes that church members grasp this all-meant interest, literally. It meant surplus or interest on investment literally. It meant increase, literally. And then suddenly, somewhere, somehow, all of these words are changed to mean income out of thin air. Your thoughts, RFM? 
Great, great point. I see the overall picture as tithing after it got off the ground in 1838 goes from a smaller amount to a bigger amount to a bigger amount. Yeah. And uh, and then I wanted to say, too, um, let me put that up. And until an official voice, church leader or LDS newsroom can explain to church membership where surplus or interest earned became gross or even net income, again, without ignoring Joseph F. Smith, who has means, and they would have to, you would have to claim that Lorenzo Snow received a revelation. Again, he, he can't change a standing law forever unless he has spoken to the Lord himself and he is proposing that we are now going to change this because the Lord has spoken. So even though he says it in an 1899 general conference talk, we don't get any indication that that's revelatory. So until the church can show that this changed from interest earned and became gross or even net income, every church member should refuse to play by the rules that have been made up in order to create the wealthy church that we have today. Why the bait and switch in meaning from interest, meaning surplus, to interest, meaning gross or net income? Why the bait and switch in word substitution and vocabulary going from the word interest to the word income? Why the obfuscation of who has means? And why not actually follow the very rule they pretend exist and allow every member of the church to be entitled to make his or her own decision and to pay, make payment accordingly? Um, personally, they should stand behind that. Every member should be allowed to make their own decision based on how they interpret section 119. And I think 119 should be allowed to be compared to the meanings in the dictionary of 1828 to see what they're trying to say or what God's trying to say. And because it's a standing law forever, it should be, they should be held accountable to that thing staying in place consistently. Yeah, I think polygamy was another of those laws that was supposed to stand forever. So God doesn't have a, a clue thing. what's going to happen. Sometimes it's a bad thing. <laughs> it kind of depends. But but I will say that on the ground, I know we're do, we, a lot of times we do this analysis and we look at the documents. You've done a great job. I just want to say that on the ground, from my point of view in the pews for 40 years, there was never any discussion about any of this. Okay. There was simply two choices that were presented. You can pay tithing on your gross income or you can pay tithing on your net income. And it was always followed up by saying, well, I guess that depends on whether you want gross blessings or net blessings, with the obvious implication that those who are truly loving the Lord and devoted to him and his service and really good members of the church, they're going to pay it on their gross income. No questions asked. Yeah, completely. You ready for some phone calls? Oh, I'm so ready. Let's do it. So first one, I think we have a mic on the phone. Mike, are you there? I am here. Okay, my friend. Can you hear him, RFM? Yes, I can. Hi, Mike. Go ahead, Mike. All right. Yeah, I was in my freshman year at BYU and was struggling. My parents took me out of BYU and forced me to live on a church ranch in West Texas for six months. Uh, it was very oppressive and brutal. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a rough time. Anyway, my church ranch... Uh, it's outside of Paducah, Texas, has never been on any, um, whenever people compile uh, what all the church owns, it's a 160,000 acre ranch, it's called the Triangle Ranch, uh, it has never appeared on any of these lists anywhere, and so if the church can hide 160,000 acres, uh, 
the the hundred billion dollar fund is just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot that is not known about what the church owns and what it has. Uh, and like I said, mine was just one ranch. I just, you know, just by accident, my, my grandparents happened to be working the ranch for their own senior mission. Uh, and my parents kind of exiled me there for six months. And uh, when I first arrived there, the, the ranch manager said that uh, the Lord does not lose money. This ranch is to make money for the Lord. And it was just an interesting experience there. Yeah, the hundred and something billion is just the Enzyme Peak investments. And so as you're pointing out, things we know and things we don't know, the land that the church owns, I've heard that the church is the second largest landholder in the U.S. outside the U.S. government. And you see all the time them buying more and more land. There has to be another several, several billion dollars just in land holdings, uh, properties, temple uh, lands near the temples, uh, ward building. When you add it all up, and again, I know that some of these properties also take money uh, to keep them running. But when you when you take any given moment, the the amount of money the church has in property or in income, it is unfathomable. Thank you, it Mike. Is. Appreciate it. Yep. Bye bye. Okay. Thanks, next, Mike. Next call is going to be Jared. Jared, you're on the line. Yeah, Not me, Jared. as in the brother of, thank you. The brother of Jared. Um, that's right. Um, if I was only as cool as Mahan Rai. Anyway, um, question for each of you. What laws could, would you create in the United States to regulate the financial matters of churches, if you could make one? And then mm. a legal question for RFM. Do you think Wendy Nelson will pay tax or I'm sorry, tithing on the marital property that she inherits from President Russell M. Nelson eventually. Thanks, guys. Hmm. I just okay, I wanted first, to say <laughs> Or you go um, first, Maven. Yeah, sorry, the other brother of Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to point out in the he changed his name in the comments. He's been going by uh bitch Rennett uh all all through the chat, which I, I thought was very clever. I cannot approve of that. I let the, the Fiduca, Texas pass. You know, this is a family show. But talking about bitch Rennett now, that's just, that's over the line, I got to say. <laughs> All right. So he asked what laws we would make. I think it's simple. I think whatever the, tr and, and it obviously the problem is you have to, you have to create something as large as the church handbook of instruction to facilitate what's an appropriate spending and what isn't. But there should be some sort of rule that whatever churches do for the good of their members or of the world in general, that money maybe could be tax exempt, but any money that you hold on to for future use be taxed. And, you know, maybe you're given so much, maybe two years of your current spending saved or 10, even 10 years of whatever your current budget is, you know, being able to save it. But at some point, if you just are accumulating money, off to the side that will never be used to feed the poor or build watering holes or do anything, then then somewhere along the line, you shouldn't be able to be tax-free on that. And I think that the IRS code talks about that kind of stuff, that that the conditions for having a an account, a fund, like the EPA is, that it has to be used, a certain amount has to be used for charitable purposes. And I think that's going on behind the scenes right now with the IRS investigation. I have no knowledge about it, but I think that's what's really being scrutinized here. And uh, we'll see what happens with that. As to Wendy Nelson 
paying tithing on what she gets from the estate of President Nelson when he kicks the bucket. Oh, I don't think she's going to pay tithing on that. I would expect that uh, President Nelson has already paid tithing on it. And so why should she pay it again? It'd be like uh, being double taxed on something. And that to me, if that's the case, that it's already had tithing paid on it, it would seem reasonable to me. Yeah, but th this church shames older folks who have paid into Social Security all their life and are now getting you know that money back after they retire. And they shame these uh, these uh, senior citizens into continuing to pay tithing on that income. There are so many folks who, who are essentially double paying their tithing uh, in lots of ways. When people give you gifts, they've talked about when you get a birthday gift, you should pay tithing right. on that. Um, and it's back and forth. I know some places they say don't, some places they say do, say do, but that's the problem. They talk out both sides of their mouth all the time, as we showed tonight from handbook to handbook. I think that's a good point. And another thing that, oh, Maven, go ahead, please. No, I just wanted, I don't know the answer to this question. I, I thought it was a good one. When did tithing become a recommend question? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if you guys do. I don't. I'm going to guess 1899. Factor as well. I think at some point, you know, with all the changes they've made in the wording that you've sh you've shown, um, you know, it would be interesting to see when this came into the picture. If anyone knows in the chat, I was gonna, I'm going to keep an eye out. I was going to Google that, but I, I think Bill is up. already doing that. Yeah. Yep. When, so when 1840s. In the early 1840s, church leaders emphasized the payment of tithing. Let's see here. The requirement was renewed in the 1880s. No, I'm sorry. They're, the church is skirting around they don't want to say that but they're just talking about how important tithing oh is. this is a church website it is i'm sorry i thought it was going to be the answer to the question <laughs> it wasn't they did anything but answer the question can i just say that you know it's not just tithing i am personally aware of a friend of mine who has been very successful in business has multiple homes and has been contacted by church representatives about deeding one of his homes over to the church when he dies and his response and astonishment was, what, are you kidding? Really? Is this phone call happening? Where am I supposed to live? You know, I mean, I have other, other vacation homes, but this is my primary residence. And they say, well, that's fine. All you do is deed it over to us. And in exchange, we give you a life tenancy. So you can live in our house until you die. And then it becomes ours. So this is not just something that's a tithing. The church has departments full of people who are monitoring the assets of more affluent members to go after the surplus, what they consider to be their surplus, which of course should actually be the church's surplus, not their surplus. So what's yours is your, you know, what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine. That's the church's policy, I think. That's the true policy of today. And here it is. So this is on exploringmormonism.com. And they're saying in 1910, tithing is now required for a temple recommend. And you nailed it. Right after that 1899 talk, and then the follow-up one by Joseph F. Smith, that is now going to become mandatory. And again, this idea of like someday this tithing thing will go away, and then just see the church just become more and more emphasis on tithing being forever, no matter how much money we have, you can see what this church has as its priorities. I know, and it's just never going to go down. It's like, it's frankly, it's like the federal government. You know, taxes, they, they just never have enough. When you have a large organization, it becomes this voracious beast like a dragon who can never have enough of what is yours. They're always going to want more, more, more until something drastic happens. Like somebody says, no, no more. 
And if enough people do that and enough people go to prison in the case of the federal government, then maybe things will change. But until that time, what we're dealing with is a beast with a voracious appetite that can never be satisfied. And I think we're seeing the same kind of thing with the LDS church. Yep. Our last caller for the night is Ryan. I apologize. I should have taken the banner down sooner. But Ryan is on the line. Ryan, you'll be our final call for the night. You're on Mormonism Live. What's on your mind? Yeah, I want to just talk about maybe take a little bit more generous turn on tithing and just kind of describe what I see as the actual, shall we say, quote unquote, blessing from tithing. And I realized this, uh, it, was, it was when I was still very truly believing, um, probably about 25 years ago or so. And uh, I also speak of somebody who uh, nearly became an accountant. But what I saw... That's the bullet. That, yeah. Um, well, no, I actually wanted to be, but my health fell apart, but that's another story. Um, well, then you dodged the bullet. Uh, anyway, Go ahead, Ryan. What I saw was that... <laughs> Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, okay, I'm getting tripped up here. Um, the blessing I see of tithing, why it actually does help people do better financially, is that it makes people sit down and analyze their finances. It actually makes people sit down and make out a basic budget. And anything else beyond that, I don't, I, I mean, if, if, even back then, I was like, I think that's it. I don't know if like God's really pouring out these magical coffers of, you know, blessings of some people. It's just a matter of, this is a very naturalistic thing that God was guiding people to, to say, hey, if you pay attention to your money a little bit more, you'll actually be able to manage it better, be able to buy the things you need, maybe have a little extra. And even now, after I'm no longer a believing member, I'm quite an atheist at this point, I still see it that way. They're like, yeah, if you're going to sit down, make a basic budget, keep track of what you're spending, what you're coming in, paying out, it's going to help you a whole lot. Couldn't you just put another 10% into a savings account that you promise not to touch and get the same benefit and more? Oh yeah, to to totally, totally. And I do that now where like I have, I have an amount where I, my uh, income, I pointedly put some to savings right away. And that that's kind of part of my thing of seeing, still keeping a budget. So kind of keeping track of what I'm doing. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's nothing magical. It's nothing that thing like that. I just wanted to say, maybe take a little bit more positive spin if, of what I could possibly scrape out of this about, about tithing. But yeah, I, well, I, that, I'm like, at this point, I'm like, you know, quit paying to the church. They don't need it. Pay to yourself. Right. And Ryan, I, Ryan, I appreciate you. You need it. I appreciate you trying to be positive and, and I agree with you. I will note though, and I think that I remember this correctly, that there is actually a calling in the church or has been in the past, like a financial person in the ward that you can go to to get help with how to create a budget and try and live within your means. Do you remember that, Ryan? Do you remember that, Bill? Was it a welfare something? Um, welfare specialist? And they would yeah, sit it was something down like that. I remember that if you, yeah, if you needed that help, there was a person who was called who was going to help you. And it does seem to me, Ryan, like you could have that person there and not have tithing and still achieve the same result. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, I know you're trying I, to I, Like I'm saying, like, I, I formed this back when, you know, 30, nearly 30 years ago when I was still believing and just wanted to say, hey, you know what, I, I still believe it, even though I basically kind of turn against the church at this point emotionally. 
Brian, I'm sorry, yeah, I'm not laughing at you. It's Colby Reddish's yeah. comment that he, he says the calling is called shakedown coordinator. Shakedown coordinator. <laughs> now, now he comes up with the, the compassionate kneecap service coordinator. Colby's on a roll tonight. Yeah, I, I don't remember that calling at all, but and I, I never was in a position where I needed to speak to somebody like that when I was in the church. So, yeah. yes. Thank well, you. Brian, Ryan. Thank you. I appreciate it. I think it's great. Colby yeah. is cutting the cheese tonight. Yeah. Yep. Cold, cold okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye, Ryan. See ya. Before I, I, we kind of close this out. I just wanted to put this up. There are members of the church now. Jana Reese is just one more in a long line of folks doing it, who are just saying enough's enough. I'm not going to pay tithing to the church anymore. They have plenty, and they're not using it wisely anyway. They bought grounds to make a rodeo. They built the City Creek Mall. They said it wasn't tithing, but it was the interest in that was invested and earned on tithing money that was invested in the first place. So they get to have a loophole that they can work through. But in reality, it all started with tithing money. Um, so they build malls, they buy rodeos, they buy land in various places. They were competing with, uh, I don't know if it was Warren Buffett or one of those high-end investors. They were hmm. competing with them to outbid them for some land. Right. And the LDS church actually won a couple of years ago. Um, we beat Buffett, baby. Yeah. So I, they're just not using the money it's a, such a small percentage of what they're actually putting into play and most of it just gets invested. And these guys at the top have all the perks. And so people like Jana Reese are saying enough is enough and they're just stop. They just stop paying tithing. And then that's my two cents to everyone out there is that it was on surplus. If you want to pay that, pay that, but anything more, you're just playing the game that they want you to play. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I can't believe that I used to buy the distinction saying it's not tithing, it's interest. When what they're really saying is, this isn't the tithing you gave us. This is the tithing we made off the money you gave us. And so don't complain about it. We can do whatever we want with it, even though it's completely fungible. And at any time, you know, you've got a certain amount that's going to be principal, a certain amount that's interest or income or whatever you want to call it, based upon that tithing. You can call any part of that that you're using for any purpose. You can call it either tithing or you can call it the interest on the tithing. Because guess what? Every dollar bill looks alike. It's fungible. Yeah. Notice when the church wants interest to mean interest and when they want it to mean something else. Interest.